discuss um, which wars America's been in that I think were just or unjust. Because that'll distract too many people from the point at hand, quite frankly. Like people, and the thing is too, we could have a debate about it. Some of us may think certain wars were unjust wars we got involved in, others may think they were just wars, and we could have a godly disagreement over which wars were just and unjust. It would be a, it would be a fair be a fair disagreement about it, and so I don't think that's worth our time. Um, so I don't want to get into all of that because I don't find that extremely helpful, especially up front. Um, but on the flip side, Chesterton has a lot of great quotes. Um, you guys all know who G.K. Chesterton was, right? He was a huge guy. He was like six six. He was like very large, um, and he became basically a Roman Catholic apologist. And he's really funny, even when he's like making fun of Lutherans, he's really funny. Like, he's just a funny guy. For example, George Bernard Shaw, who was an atheist and a playwright, he was friends with his opponents. They loved him. Um, and so, because he was quite large, George Bernard Shaw said, are you having a boy or a girl? And Chesterton said, if it's a boy, we'll call him John. If a girl, Mary, if it's just gas, we'll call him George Bernard Shaw. So that's... And um, that's the kind of guy he was. But he, he was a brilliant intellect, great writer. Um, and he said, saying my country right or wrong is like saying my mother drunk or sober. And his point was that just because that's your mom, it doesn't mean you want to see her drunk and that's okay that she's drunk. Um, his point with that quote is, just because our country is involved in something, as Christians we have to step back and say, is this right or wrong? We can't just say, America did it, therefore it's right. That's not Christian. Right? And so, one thing the principles of just war help us with is help us as Christians evaluate wars, for example, conflicts we get into. So, so that's, those are really important points up front to look at. Um, I'm not, and that's part of the reason I think it's such an important topic because Christians used to be the most anti war people on the planet. And that's kind of changed in America. If you look at the history of traditional conservatives versus or what now are known as neoconservatives and where that shift happened with how we view war, it's all very fascinating. But, but a bigger point is Christians used to be those who saw war as the last resort. And now often, Christians are kind of almost campaigning for various wars to happen. And I also think that's dangerous. So we need to be able to biblically think through these things. Um... It's also important to know, too, um, on some of the issues we're going to look at today, people will quote Luther. Luther's fun because he wrote a lot, like almost more than any other humans ever lived. Like, he's written a ton. We barely have a, just a small stack of his stuff translated into English. But Luther's views on some of the things we're going to look at today actually changed over time, especially if you look at the backside, um, when to resist tyranny. His views on that changed dramatically from the beginning of his career as, uh, as a writer and reformer to the end, he, he develops, he changed, he morphed his view on that as he studied scripture more. Um, and so sometimes people will look at Luther for some things we're going to talk about, but what we're going to outline today is eventually where Luther ended up at the end, on all the topics we're going to look at. This is where kind of his mature thought led him on these things. Um, you'll also notice a huge difference on this handout compared to all the other ones you've received. As we've talked about wisdom, what's one thing that's not on there? It's been on like every handout. There's no scripture. Here's why. 
we have an hour. And um, <laughs> the stuff we're going to get into is pretty complex and could take quite a long time, especially if there could be questions and things. And so I'm assuming with a Bible study class like this, that you know what the Bible says about peace, that we're to be at peace with all men as far as we can. I'm assuming with a class like this that you know the fifth commandment and that we're not to murder, but that also murder is different than killing. There's a distinction. Like that's why translations that say you shall not kill are, are bad because there are times when killing is not only not bad, but it's actually the most loving thing you can do for someone is to defend them by killing those who are trying to harm them, right? Self-defense, for example, if someone's trying to harm your family. Or in the case we're going to look at, soldiers fighting in just war. Or a police officer, right, who has to use deadly force against someone. So I'm assuming with a class like this that you're familiar with what the Bible teaches on the fifth commandment and, and, and peace. Which is why we're not looking at those things, because the principles of just war that you have before you, they flow out of, and they're built upon, those verses... And they come down to us all the way back to St. Augustine. I mean, he's the one who finally kind of fully put them into order. So we're talking about 1,700 years of Christian thought on this, flowing out of what does the Bible say about peace? What does the Bible say about murder? Those are really the two main topics, right, that we're addressing when it comes to war. Um, and so these principles flow out of those things. And so what I want to look at today, first of all, is briefly the history of, of just war theory in the church. And then what is just war theory? And look at the principles of it and, and how that might look today if, if we were looking at going into a conflict. And then also, uh, Lord William, we'll have time to look at the Magdeburg Confession principles from your back uh, of your sheet, the levels there. I know it's kind of lame to say green, yellow, orange, red, but um, uh, I think the church would have killed me if I made 100 copies with the bright colors that were on the original uh, that, I, that I copied this from. So it just tells you the levels and the colors associated with them based on that confession. So that's what we want to do today. So first, briefly, the history. Um, there was some pacifism in the early church. Yes. Yes. Keep these back there. I don't think anyone's going to jump in the front. Um, there were some pacifists in the early church because the Roman military was pretty messed up. I mean, we get the word decimate from one of their practices, which was if they screwed up, you decimate them, which is doing what? Killing what? Every decimate tenth. Every tenth soldier you kill to send a message to the rest. Like, that's one of the reasons they're very good at keeping law in order, by the way. Like, they did this well because people were afraid of them, right? They put crucifixes along main highways so that people will look at it and say, I don't want to mess with the Romans. That's why they did that kind of stuff. It's how they kept people in check. So they were good at that. Um, so there were Christians, early Christians, who looked at the Roman army and said, I can't fight for them. Look at what they're doing. So even very early on, you have a conflict of conscience with uh, Christians wrestling with these very issues. Is it okay for Christians to fight in battle? Is it okay for a Christian to kill someone in war? And very early on, some said, uh, no, 
Not at all. Um, now, I'll talk more about pacifism in a moment. I have a lot of sympathy for pacifism, and I think as a Christian we all should. I'll get more to that in a moment. I think we too easily dismiss pacifism. I don't think it's a, the biblical solution, but I see how people get there. Um, but already also in the early church, you had just war theory developing as Christians were being part of groups to defend their country's borders, to defend their country from invading armies. So you had this tension from, almost from the get-go with Christians about this thing. You have Christians very early on refusing unjust orders and unjust commands and willing to be punished for disobeying. They would say, I can't do that. This command you give me is wicked. And they would suffer the consequences. I mean, even so, um, not, not real early church, but like Martin of Tours, who you should all know because certain someone was baptized on Martin of Tours Day and given the name Martin. Yes? <laughs> Familiar with that guy? Um, so Martin of Tours quit the army because he didn't believe he could fight in it any longer. He is the one, by the way, you may be familiar with his story. Uh, we just had it. It's part of the reason you celebrate Veterans Day on the day you do, right? It's because of Martin of Tours. Um, he cuts his cloak. He got in trouble because he kept giving away his, like, parts of his uniform to those who were cold. Matthew 25, we heard today. To those who were cold and suffering. And they said, you can't do this anymore. Like, stop it. So the next time he saw someone cold and shivering, he cuts his cloak in half. So he didn't technically give the whole thing away. Well, that didn't last long, and he ends up getting out of the military altogether um, and leaving it. But you have that going on. Um, think about John the Baptist. John the Baptist, to so the soldiers, didn't tell them to get out of the army when he called them to repentance. He told them to wage, basically, their duty justly. Right? He didn't say, you have to be out of the army. You can't be a soldier and be a Christian. He didn't say that, but he did tell them to be just in what they were doing. Um, so these are kind of things that we're kind of rattling around. Um, and then it's Augustine, as I mentioned, who's the first to fully articulate what does it look like to love your neighbor? And that gets built upon over the years. Aquinas gets into a long thing on self-defense in the Christian. Um, Luther will come in with stuff. Luther wrote a very, very famous little booklet on this topic. Do any of you know what it's called? Hmm? Not the catechism. It's a, it's a whole book. A short little booklet. It's not real long. Anyone know what it's called? Whether Soldiers Too Can Be Saved? Have you heard of that one? So he wrote this booklet, Can You Be a Soldier and Be a Christian, basically, because of this tension. And his, his end argument is, yes, but if you're given unjust order, orders or sent to an unjust war, then you should refuse for conscience sake. But he also says in there, this is interesting, he says, you as a soldier may not know whether what you're being sent into is just or unjust because you're just a soldier. You may not have all the information. And so then you have to trust those above you. And then it's ultimately on them. There are times when you may not have all the information as a soldier to know, am I fighting a just war or unjust war? And Luther says, if you don't know, you really don't know, then you can fight in it and it's on those above you because they're the ones responsible for it. So Luther's answer is, yes, you can be a Christian and be a soldier, but he wants to frame it with, you need to be careful to make sure it's a just warrior fighting. And this, this is where he's getting from is, 
this idea of just war that we're going to look at. Um, so this has been thought about for, for nearly the whole existence of the church and wrestled with because it's a hard topic. It's not easy, right? Um, sometimes, uh, you know, again, as Americans, we have to step back because we're very much shoot first, ask questions later. Like, that's kind of like, you know, kind of, you know, especially I lived out west, right? I mean, this is like, you know, this is the mentality. Like, you shoot first, you ask questions later. Um, it's always okay. And the Christians were always like, no, we can't, we can't do that. We've got to think through these things. And so the, the three kind of that come down to us today, that, that we're, we're going to talk about briefly before looking at just, just war, is pacifism. And pacifism says what? What is pacifism's answer to any violence? Is it ever okay to respond to violence? No. Never. There's never a circumstance. And I push guys on this. There, there are, even right now, Lutheran pastors who are total pacifists. And I said, if you walked into your home and someone was harming your wife and children, you wouldn't use violence to stop them? Oh, well, I would try other means first. I'm like, like what? <laughs> like, what, what would you do let's to talk. restrain them? Let's talk. I mean, yeah, let's talk it out. I mean, I think in reality, that's a, my problem with pacifism at the end of the day is that it's people that sit in ivory towers who don't actually live in the real world and have to actually do anything and get their hands dirty. Like, it doesn't work at the end of the day because uh, you're confronted with that scenario, and I'm sorry, is it really loving to just watch them be obliterated by some evil person? I don't think so. I don't think that's loving. I think the loving thing to do is to step in and protect them. Even if it means you have to take that other person's life, right? You're defending your family. You're doing that out of love. These are some of the things that, that Luther talks about. Like, there's a time for that. And if, if the wicked person is trying to harm others and you step in, then you can use force to stop them. Look, no Christian should ever want to take anyone's life. It's a very serious, weighty thing. But if someone's doing great harm, then you should be able to step in. But the pacifist says, look, Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Jesus says, go the extra mile. Jesus says to love your enemy. You cannot love your enemy and put them to death. That's why I, I think if you're a Christian, you, actually ha you have to at least wrestle with pacifism. So there's a lot of verses that seem to be in their favor. And you have to wrestle with those things. You have to say, well, why is it okay for me to step in and defend? I think that's where the Lutheran doctrine of vocation is extremely helpful the table of duties, things like that, where we can say, it is my duty as the head of the household, as a father and husband, to protect my family. Right? You are, what, what did we used to, we used to have a phrase about our homes. A man's home is his what? And what kind of doctrine do we have off of that in law? It's called castle doctrine, right? Castle law. That you, you can defend it. Because technically, and this is a very Lutheran view that this comes from, as Luther says, all, all authority flows from who? I mean, from, not from God, but where does authority start in the world? Parents. Authority starts with the parents. Every other authority on the face of the earth flows out of the parental office. And its first duty is to protect church and home. That's what it's there for, right? And so um, the head of the household has always been seen as, as if you will, a, a, his own magistrate, ruler of 
his households. Um, some groups will use the language of spheres, which, which I, I think can be helpful, right? So the, the local, state, federal government, they have a sphere of authority, but that doesn't, and, and it has limits when it comes to the church at home. The president of states, the governor of the states, city council, etc., they have limits on what they can tell me to do within my home, or at least should. <laughs> I'm speaking in theory. I'm not saying it always works out that way practically for us right now. But that's the way it should be. They should not, there's boundaries they can't cross and can't say you must do it this way. There were states during COVID trying to tell churches how to administer communion. What does the state know about administering communion? They know nothing. They don't. They, just don't, they don't. So to tell a church you have to do it this way, um, that's overstepping bounds. They have set spheres of authority. Um, so pacifism, as much as I, I think Christians have to wrestle through, it wasn't mean to love your neighbor. All of those things. Um, I think there's enough. For example, right? Uh, we, Paul tells us too that the governing authorities have the power of the sword. That's to put people to death. That's, and that includes defense of a nation with armies and, and things like that. So I just don't think pacifism works out very well practically. But I do think there are arguments about, well, Christians are to love their neighbors and love their enemies. I think we do have to wrestle with those. But the moment you get into a spot where you, you have to wrestle with, well, should I step in and stop this person from harming my wife and kids? And you have to and you stopped, and you don't know what to do, and you have to think about it, that's problematic to me. Like, that's, how is that loving? In fact, I told these guys, I said, go ask your wives. <laughs> if you came home, and they were being beaten, or whatever's happening in your home, and I asked them if it's loving for you just to stand there, because you don't want to use violence to stop it. And ask them what they think. I can tell you what their wives are going to say. I don't think any of their wives would be like, well, you know, it'd be fine if you just stood there and let that happen. The second, I think, is where most Christians are practically speaking today. And that's a realism of pragmatism, which says, you know what? Um, war is an awful, horrible thing. We don't want it. But look, we've got to be pragmatic about this. And we have to win. And so as long as we win, that's all that really matters. There are really evil people in this world, and we have to do whatever it takes to put an end to it. And so if a bunch of civilians get killed, then that's just too bad. They're in the wrong place at the wrong time. And as long as we're not those civilians, it sounds really great. We don't mind. We don't mind as long as it's not us. It sounds, it's really great when it's in the abstract. It's like most things, right? It's really great in the abstract until that applies to you. Like, um, there was a councilwoman in Minnesota who had voted to defund the police, and then she was carjacked with her kids in the car. Guess who's arguing for the police to be funded right now? Yeah. It sounded great in theory, until her car was the one that was carjacked and her kids were put in danger. Now she wants a police force. And I think it's the same thing with realism and pragmatism. It sounds great to say, do whatever it takes, unless you're on the receiving end of that, do whatever it takes. Um, so... Realism and pragmatism is just like, well, wars, it's just messy, it's hard, you just gotta do whatever, whatever. Uh, it doesn't really matter what the consequences are as long as we win. I'm kind of oversimplifying all of these positions, but for the sake of time, that's what we gotta do. Uh, 
And, and honestly, this is where a lot of Christians end up. Because we feel that tension. We live in a messy world. It's simple. It's wicked. And we do want to be on the winning side. We don't want to lose a battle. We don't want to lose the war. We don't want to be a part of that. And so we think, well, we don't want to think about the consequences. But let me ask you something. A lot of us know about what's going on. Well, <laughs> we think we know a lot about what's going on in places like Ukraine or Israel or whatever. But let me ask you something. There's been a civil war in Yemen for nine years. How many people are dead there? Does anyone know? Thousands. What'd you say? Not quite, but yeah, it's over. It's we're even close to four hundred thousand dead in nine years. Do you know how many children, children, in Iraq were starved out by policies put in place by the United States and Great Britain to to go after Saddam? It's over one hundred fifty thousand. Children. That is children. That's just children. We, we have to be able to step back and ask hard questions because this stuff matters. Like, it's, when we think it only in abstract, that, well, so some billions are going to die. Again, as long as it's not you and your kids, it doesn't bother you. But it should bother us as Christians that in Yemen, there's over 300,000 people have died in this nine years of a war. It's a lot of people. 150,000 kids is a lot of kids. Right? And so that's why we have to have things like just where to guide us because uh, the sinful flesh just wants to win. And the sinful flesh doesn't care who gets hurt in the process as long as like, we can say we're right and we've done the right thing. We can pat ourselves on the back and say we won. That's, that's all there is to it. Um, because you can go into a just war, as we'll see in a moment. You can enter a war that's it's just, it's good that you're there fighting, and you can do it in an unjust way. I'll, I'll tell you up front, that's one of my concerns right now about Israel and Hamas. One of my concerns, there are Christians in Palestine. There's a lot of them. And they've lived under wicked rulers for years and years. And they've been caught in between two people that hate each other, and they often bear the brunt of it. Um... And I think what Hamas did, and I've read a ton, I've looked at a ton of stuff on it, what Hamas did is just vile and evil and wicked. And they're a terrorist organization, they're not governments. And they've been abusing their own people for years and years and years. Typical story in lots of countries throughout the world. However, Israel in response cannot just be like, well, whatever happens, happens, we've got to wipe out the bad guys. That, that's not okay either. It's just, it's, it's not... It's not Christian, at least, um, to start thinking that way. We have to be able to step back and say, okay, yeah, we want to go after the bad guys and we want to get them, but I don't want to indiscriminately kill a bunch of women and children to get there because that's not okay either. Um, which is why I said this, this is hard. So let's look at the principles. Um, the first several have to do with, um, it's called use ad bellum, uh, just cause essentially to go to war. A just war can only be waged as a last resort. All nonviolent options must be exhausted before the use of force can be justified. Um, so when it comes to countries, right, countries are the ones who can wage war, not individuals. When it comes to country, you have to exhaust all nonviolent options first. Is there any way to do this without going to war? If you look historically, a lot of wars 
happen over personality differences among leaders. <laughs> the same reason there's some things that have happened in church history where things have gone poorly in the church over personality differences among leaders. I mean, whole countries have gone to war because someone's, like, dignity was offended, and rather than just, like, humble themselves and get over it, they've sent, you know, people to die for them. A war is just only if it is waged by a legitimate authority. Even just causes cannot be served by actions taken by individuals or groups who do not constitute an authority sanctioned by whatever the society and outsider society deem legitimate. So in other words, um, if we wanted to say, hey, we're going to start uh, the Illinois State Militia here, us, and we're going to go fight whoever we want to go fight in a war, we don't have the authority to do that. We have no authority to do that. So that would not be a just war because it would be an unjust group of people doing this. Um, so it has to be waged by legitimate authorities, those who actually have the power to wage war. Now, technically, so our Constitution, who does it say is the only body that can actually declare war in the United States? <coughs> How often has Congress actually done that? Only on pressure because the president did something stupid. There's not, it's not, the number of times it's done is very few compared to the number of wars we've been in. Um, and they often do that, and it's, it's weird, too, because the Congress has allowed that to happen, so they've allowed the president to step into that role. Um, but officially, the United States, the Congress should declare war to actually, to, to actually go, go to war um, and do that. There's also a difference, too. Um, there, there's a guy, um, um, Tlaib, he's written a bunch of books. One of them is Skin in the Game. And he talks about this. It used to be a, a lot of ancient leaders, things, they would often go to war and fight with their soldiers. They're on the battlefields. Most of the people that are going to send people to die today are not going to send their children, and they're not going to go. Which has to at least raise the question, um, if you're not willing to do that, what, are, what, is, what is behind this? Um, those are good questions to at least ask. It doesn't mean they're always voting for things that are not just, but it does make you wonder, like, if you're not willing to go there or send your own kids to go fight in this battle, then... And is it, is it something that you really want my kids to be fighting for? Um, a just war can only be fought to redress a wrong suffered. For example, self-defense against an armed attack is always considered to be a just cause. Although the justice of the cause is not sufficient, see point number four. Further, a just war can only be fought with right intentions. The only permissible objective of a just war is to redress the injury. So... Self-defense is a just reason to go to war. You've been attacked. Now you have reason to go to war because you're going to stop those who have attacked you. Right? That's, that's a good reason to go to war. Um, it's, it's the main reason. Right? If, in our, my imaginary Illinois militia scenario, right, if let's say the people from Missouri took up a militia and wanted to invade the border and take over southern Illinois, um, it would be just for those of southern Illinois militia to take up arms and defend themselves and property from the people invading. That would be just. Because you're protecting yourself from those who are invading. You're, it's, it's a defensive war. You're not... You're, now, if we set up a militia and took up arms 
And we went in and we just wanted to, uh, just wanted the land of, of um, Eastern Missouri. And so we're like, we're just going to go in there and just take the land because we just want it. Well, that wouldn't be just, right? right? It's, th- these are the kind of things we're wrestling with. When is it okay to go in and, and fight? And when is it not okay to fight? And again, so <laughs> the principles of just war are great. Um, and they're very helpful. However, it gets messy in real life. Like Luther said, you're not always, a soldier's not always going to know. And so while Luther tells the soldier, look, you can be a soldier and a Christian, yes. And honestly, Lutherans are really good at this. We even have, we have more chaplains than I believe any other denomination, like just periods. Like we just have more. Like we're, we've always, we've, LCMS has always had a lot of soldiers. We've had chaplains. We've always understood that you can be a soldier and a Christian. Um, and so and it goes all the way back to Luther writing, whether soldiers too can be saved. One of my professors said we should, he should have written a tra- treatise whether pastors too can be saved. Um, because, and one of my professors was going to write that, but I don't think he ever, he ever, he ever wrote that, just because uh, pastors dealing with these kind of things all the time can deal with them in a very abstract way and not actually believe any of it. And so he's going to write uh, a similar one, but called whether pastors too can be saved. But when you have... When you have this kind of idea, then, then there becomes questions. Well, redress a wrong suffered. And it gives an example of an armed attack, but are there other kinds of things that can happen in our day and age where they haven't actually maybe fired a shot or fired a missile that could demand a military response? Is uh, there a time limit to redress a, a wrong action? Um, they did not... Put one, no. But notice if point one is find all, I mean, so it's not like you have so many days or something, yeah. Um, I mean, that seems to be some discussion now, things that happened maybe 100 years ago, not necessarily so. Yeah, I mean, well, I would think at that point, right, it's, I, I would say at least it's got to be within the context of like those recent enough that you're actually thinking about it because of <coughs> danger, right? Yeah. I, I don't understand. To redress the injury. Can you... In other words, uh, you are responding because they've they've attacked you, and, and you're making it's a it's a just response. You're making it right um, by by your actions. You're not just punishing them to punish them. You're not just doing something to um, to get back at them to get your pound of flesh, but it's actually to right a wrong that's been done to you. Um, any other questions at this point? Before we get any further in, in these, like putting to death the murderer. Yeah, I guess. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I guess I uh, have have a bit of an I don't know if an issue, but I have a concern about the the number number two. I mean, what would uh, the Continental Army be uh, be uh, viewed as under the context of legitimate authority? <coughs> Certainly not to King George, right? That's that's a fantastic question. So the Revolutionary War. Um, there is a debate, was the Revolutionary War just or unjust? And if you know the Magdeburg Confession, the back side of your sheets, I think you can very easily argue that it was a just war because the lesser magistrates are the ones who stepped in. So there was a legitimate authority. So that, that gets to the principle of what we call the, lesser, the doctrine of the lesser magistrate, which is fully articulated at Magdeburg, um, which is, so for example, um, here would be a... a um, so the Madison County Sheriff, uh, generally, I, I'm assuming that's how it is here, Most usually the sheriff's the highest law enforcer in a county, yeah? 
So let's say um, the state said, you as the sheriff, you need to go in and shut down any churches that are against LGBTQ. And the sheriff says, I'm not going to do that, that's unjust. Not only am I not going to do that, but I'm going to use my sheriff's officers to protect the churches from anything you would try to do. He is the lesser magistrate, he's stepped in, he's, he's saying, you're violating the Constitution, I'm up here to uphold it, um, you can't do that. And so I think there's a, a way that you look at the Revolutionary War where you say, what they did was step in and say, you have overstepped your bounds, you don't have authority to do these things. Um, and it's kind of interesting too, because had they just not tried to think of it, the, the war cost them way more than they were gonna make from the taxes anyway. I mean, it's, the whole thing is kind of interesting to look at, but they stepped in as, as magistrates, as rulers of the people and said, um, no, this is unjust, we're gonna put a stop to this. That's different than just a group of us saying we're just gonna go fight somebody who's gonna fight them. There is an actual authority there who's stepping in. So that is different than just, and this was Luther's big concern, because Luther's concern, if you read his writings on the peasant revolt, for example, um, Luther got in some trouble over this because the peasants thought Luther would be on their sides. And one of the things Luther hated more than anything was anarchy. Luther despised anarchy. He thought it was more wicked than a tyrant, because the bloodshed is way worse often, and then there's no rule of law. And then eventually, what do you get out of anarchy anyway? You get a different tyrant. Chaos produces a tyrant. So, for example, in Iraq, after Saddam was toppled, who came into power? There was a power vacuum. Who do we have now? ISIS. Right? There's a power vacuum. So, in the midst of chaos and anarchy, there, there arose somebody to step in and take the power. Luther was always very concerned about that. So, he thought the fourth commandment at least requires um, in these kind of things that just a revolt for the sake of revolt uh, without doing it properly was very dangerous. And even as we'll get to the Magdeburg Confession, you'll see they put up with a lot before they say you can actually revolt against the tyrants. Like, it's not just something you just do. Um, you don't wake up one day and say, you know, I really don't like this, this government, and we're just going to overthrow it. Um, for them, there was very serious breaches of what they were sworn to do that had to happen before you could get to that point. And they were, they were very, they articulated this very well, and again, it's based on things Luther wrote and things they, they worked through. Um, having a lesser magistrate, a lesser authority, who has the authority to step in and say, no, this is wrong. Um, you can't do this. You're violating your oath of office. In the United States, okay, you're violating your constitutional duty. You can't do this. If someone down the chain says, nope, I'm not, I'm not implementing that, it's wrong. Um, and they would argue that's the right way to go about it. So that's why they take that so seriously. Because otherwise, then just anyone can start a war uh, or whatever. Um, and then we even, even today, right, a group that does that, we label either, at, usually nowadays, we use the word terrorist organization, right? If they wage war, they're not actually legitimate governing authority of any kind. Um, so I'd argue the Continental Army was. They did it through the proper channels. Um, now, there are Christians who would disagree with that. I think they're wrong. But, <laughs> but, but there are Christians who think the Revolutionary War was unjust because of the, the issue you just mentioned, because of some of these principles. I think you can defend it pretty easily, but um, it could be debated. 
A war can only be fought, can be just if it is fought with a reasonable chance of success. Deaths and injuries incurred in a hopeless cause are not morally justifiable. This is especially for leaders. So if a leader says, you know what, I know we can't win this, but you guys are just going to go and whatever happens, happens. Uh, too bad for you all. I'm going to go escape or whatever. Um, that, um, that they would say is not just war because you're just needlessly prolonging the inevitable and you're just getting a lot of people killed in the process. Like when we invaded Iraq, they've been fighting for a thousand years and we're not going to stop it. Yeah, I mean, so there's there going to be arguments made over like going into having people on the ground in, in countries like Iraq, Afghanistan. Um, but it is, is it just? Is it unjust? Um, revolution works far enough ago that I'm willing to comment on it. I'm not going to get into all of the... <laughs> More current conflicts. But I mean, th those are arguments that could be had. Every war should be evaluated and people should be able to debate it. I mean, that's part of like looking at these things and, and wrestling with them, right? Like, um, but that's what we have Congress for. <laughs> well, yeah. There's those people you can trust to do this for you. Uh, but as Christians, we also have to be able to evaluate their decisions. Now, with, with this one, this one's tricky too, right? Because how. How easy is it to know whether it's absolutely a losing cause or not? Is that always easy to determine? Can you always look at it and say, well, we're definitely going to lose? We wouldn't have fought the revolutionary war if we thought that. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of wars you can look at and say, well, did they really think they could win? I mean, I think in general, you don't really fight unless you think you can win. So this one gets really, I think this one, this is tricky. Again, none of these are as like clear-cut as we would like. That's why it's called... Uh, you know, principles, it's not always like, it's not always going to be black or white. There's going to be times when you go to war where there's a gray area with this stuff. It's, it's messy. It's not, we're not talking about the pragmatism where we just say, oh, whatever happens, happens. But we do have to be realistic enough to say, applying these principles of just war is not, is not easy. It requires a lot of thought and wrestling, and we could get it wrong. You know, we don't, I, I don't know anyone that wants to lose a war. I think everyone thinks they're going to win. I was just going to comment on that with Ukraine and Russia. From the outside looking in, it, it looked like there was no hope for Ukraine. Our own government thought that they would be overthrown within a few days. And, and yet we see the opposite. They are still um, maintaining some, some wins. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very hard to tell, even with all of the you know, intel and things we have. It's always hard. It's it's hard to evaluate these things. I also think going back to what Luther said, I think that's why Luther says to the soldier, "Look, you may not always know. If you know something's wrong, don't do it, because then then it's on your head." But there are a lot of times when a soldier may not know whether what they're being sent into is right or wrong, and then they have to trust those above them. But I think that's why Luther says this, even based on these kind of principles, is because it gets messy, and we we don't always know clearly exactly what the answer is going to be, what the outcome is going to be. When the colonies of this country first got, one of the biggest challenges they had was the Puritans. The Puritans were dead set against going against the British because it went against everything they believed. Right. But they had the wisdom to say, that's okay. You don't have to fight this thing if it comes to that. You guys can sit out, still be part of our country, go with us. But that was a good compromise in that situation at that point. They knew they wouldn't get into the fray when it came. came right, and it's interesting too with with the Revolutionary War because the 
the Presbyterians, the Scottish Presbyterians, and the, um, the Lutherans were some of the ones that, based on principles of just war and doctrine of lesser magistrate, were the ones who were willing to say, we think this is just and we're going to fight. Right? Um, because of their understanding. Whereas the Puritans, um, I think we're often really harsh on the Puritans, but I mean, they did get a lot of things wrong. They hated Christmas too, which is really messed yeah. up. But um, <laughs> technically, Presbyterians did too. That was a man made holiday. But um, uh, most Presbyterians have gotten over that, but there's still some groups that won't even celebrate Christmas. But because of this, is where your theology, like, theology matters in practical things. What you believe about these things matters for, like, everything. And I would say, I think the Puritans got, on this one, they got that wrong. Um, and the Presbyterians and Lutherans were right, that, this, that it was a just cause. Um, and that they followed the right steps. All right, so those, the first four are um, <coughs> about cause for going to war. And, and so is the next one. And then the last two, six and seven, when we get to those, are in war itself. So the ultimate goal of a just war is to reestablish peace. More specifically, the peace established after the war must be preferable to the peace that would have prevailed if the war had not been fought. Um, this is, historically speaking, if you look at the sanctions against Germany after World War I were so horrific that it paved the way for someone like Hitler to rise to power. It was not... If you were a German after World War I and you, what they did to the country, you would not have said, this is preferable, this peace is preferable to what was before. They really went after them and punished them, including the civilians, for, for what happened there. Um, so there you have an instance of like the peace afterwards ends up being really messy, and it creates conditions. It doesn't cause Hitler per se, but it creates conditions where someone like a Hitler can rise to power take control of the mess um and so wanting to have peace that's preferable to what would have prevailed had the war not been fought is important too um now these two are in war um use um in bellum the violence used in war must be proportional to the injury suffered states are prohibited from using force not necessary to attain the limited objective of addressing the injury suffered um so kill them all and let God sort it out is not part of the just war theory. It's not. Like you, you're supposed to think through what, what kind of force can we use to address what's been done wrong, and then we stop there, and then it's over. Right? Um, and then the seventh one I think is really important. The weapons used in war must discriminate between combatants and non-combatants. Civilians are never permissible targets of war, and every effort must be taken to avoid killing civilians. The deaths of civilians are justified only if they are unavoidable victims of deliberate attack on military targets. So that cuts out any bombs, one wants. <laughs> that gets, I mean, it gets into uh, some interesting questions about how we use bombs. So, um, I don't know how familiar you guys are with uh, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien or how much of their stuff you've read, but... But for, for Lewis, um, in one of his works for the Chronicles of Narnia, right, the, the witch in it, she has this word that destroys everything, which was what? What's the picture of? The atomic bomb, right? And he talks about how dangerous it is for anyone to even have this. Um, we do have weapons that are, are so 
deadly and indiscriminate that they are, I mean, you drop, you know everyone's gonna die if you drop this thing, right? Um, and that, that gets in all kinds of questions. See, that's why it's still, we're, it's still debated today, um, right? People still debate whether dropping atomic bombs uh, on Japan was just or not. That's still debated. And it's still debated because one of the arguments for them being dropped is that more lives were saved because they were dropped versus if they hadn't been dropped. And so that's a debate that's still going on today, right, with those kind of things. But it does make you at least stop back and ask, like, are the weapons we're using, are, can we discriminate? Now, we do have various bombs that can be very precise nowadays. I mean, they, they have the technology to hit, like, what level on a house they want to hit. You know, I mean, they, they can be that precise with, with the technology we have today. Um, and this is where it gets tricky. This is where some of the debates right now with Israel and Hamas are raging is because Israel keeps saying, look, we're going after these sites because they're military targets. And they're using, they're setting up military targets around civilians so they won't be attacked. That's where some of the debates right now are happening too. I mean, these are things that were, are being discussed right now in the world. This very issue of like combatants, non-combatants, how do you do this? Um, because again, this gets tricky too, especially if you're having urban warfare. You know, if you're fighting in a city, that gets very tricky. Well, I was gonna argue about the, uh, the principle of proportionality just because you could, you could look at what's been happening in Israel with Hamas over the last years and go, well, every time they were attacked in the past, they pretty much just pushed them back and let them go. And it hasn't really helped anything because Hamas will be satisfied until Israel's wiped off the face of the earth. So I'm not sure in a case like that you could argue that proportionality is, is, is just because of the tactics and the, uh, the beliefs of your enemy. I guess you'd have to figure out what does proportionality look like in that case. I think would maybe be a better question. Like, what does it look like? Um, I mean, think about what they just did. What is the proportional response to what they just did? And you probably can make the argument that removing Hamas completely is a proportional response to what they just did. Um, but, you know, I think that could be, I think it could be argued that's a proportional response to remove, to remove Hamas completely from ruling could be viewed as proportional based on what they just did. It doesn't seem like the terrorists read and prescribe to the, the, the uh, principles of a just war. No, terrorists don't. I mean, that, and that's the thing, right? I mean, that's, that's the danger is... They respond with a just war. Right. This, this, again, it's where, uh, where the principles get, it gets complicated because if we want to fight... This is why people fall into realism and pragmatism because... Um, Christians for 2,000 years have saying, look, this is what just war looks like. And, and other people say, that's not realistic. Have, they don't care about that. Why should we care about that? Um, I think the answer to that question is, we don't want to become them. I don't, I don't want to be them. I don't want to behead babies because Hamas beheaded babies. Like, that's, like, you, we don't want to go down that road. Like, it's okay to do that because Hamas did it. Like, when you start down that road, it's a very dark and dangerous road to start saying, well, because they've done this, we can do this. Um, that's, I think that's why where these principles become helpful is because, again, our sinful flesh wants to retaliate in kind. Like, we want, we, we just want, we want to win and, you know, be done with it. Um, whereas this is saying you've got to step back and look at the whole picture. Because um, oftentimes, civilians 
are just as imprisoned or suffering as much as those the people attacked. Right? So Hamas attacked someone. Their own people have been suffering under them. Not all of them. Some of them are complicit with Hamas or whatever. But a lot of them have suffered greatly under Hamas and just have nowhere to go. Right? Sometimes people are like, well, they could just move. Like, have you... I could just move. I mean, there are millions. We have more displaced people in the world right now that is displaced from their original home than like any other time in world history from a lot of these wars that are going on all over the place. I mean, the numbers are staggering. So there's not really anywhere to go. And even if you go, are they going to take you in? Are they going to kick you out? I mean, it's, it's a mess. All right, any questions on just war before we look at the Magdeburg Confession? I have a question about terrorism oh. on home. Oh, me. To Jericho? Yeah. So gospel, yeah. So um, the the war to take the, the promised land was a war of God's judgment against people that had been warned for four hundred years to repent and did not repent. So it's God's judgment on them for failure to repent, and for it's kind of funny because the atheists will say, "Why is God doing about suffering?" And then the same atheists will say, "Why did God wipe out these ancient people?" And it's like I thought He wanted God to do something about suffering and evil. He did. He wiped them out because they were some the most wicked people who ever walked the face of the earth. Um, so that was God's judgment against the wicked people that had been given 400 years to repent, right? Even as they wanted to, they got he had additional 40 years as Israel wandered. When they go into Jericho, Rahab says, we know what your God did in Egypt. That's 40 years later. And she's terrified of it. And so she repents, whereas the rest of people don't. So um, when you look at what's going which is why you can't use the Old Testament as like one as a here here is where we should Israel's battles or what should give us principles for just war or two um, even how to fight wars because most of, like okay here's the plan we're gonna march on the building once once a day for six days on the seventh day we're gonna do it seven times and that'll show them <laughs> like or hey if we just hold up Moses's hands we'll win like those aren't like actual. Half the time, most, most of the battles Israel fights in, God is teaching them to trust him. And it's not because they were clever or smart or had great leaders, like military leaders. It's usually because God like, sent angels to wipe out the army before they even get there. Or made the, the army see things and hear things and attack each other. Or, you know, um, made the sun stand still and giant rocks of hail fall on the, ar- the army. Like, you know, we can't look to those things. Um, it's kind of like we're studying the book of Acts for the men's study. A lot of those things are descriptive, not prescriptive, right? Like, they're showing us what happened, not what we should do. Not giving us a blueprint for what to do. So your question on... Yes. Since it's very hard for anybody outside the U.S. to actually put boots on the ground because of our ability to protect people, other countries from doing that, um, what do Christians do if a cell within the country erupts with terrorism, how should we protect ourselves? Like in our own country, you mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, the nice thing is we have, here we have lots of levels of law enforcement other things that can actually fight those things. Um, I mean, it's also possible, too, uh, a sheriff can deputize, like, the whole population if there's, like, a... I mean, you, you could do that. A sheriff could say, uh, you're all deputized to fight this right now or the governor could say you're all you know i mean there's there's a lot of ways that, that could look um 
it's a fight from within. Just as an aside, um, in Illinois, a law enforcement officer can uh, direct any person over age 18 to assist them. It's yeah. a law. How many of you are familiar with the Magdeburg Confession? Has anyone read it? So, uh, you can get it right. This is translated by a reform guy. The, the Lutheran translation still hasn't even come out yet. Uh, it's coming. I know it's being worked on right now, but it's not out yet. Um, the first part of this is just basic theology that the Lutherans believe, which is kind of interesting. They wrote it, though. So, um, following Luther's death, as you know, all kinds of crazy things happened. Um, and the Roman Catholics were trying to force some Lutherans in areas to worship a certain way. And in Magdeburg, um, they're essentially surrounded by the Roman Catholic army, um, if you will. I mean, it's not quite the Roman Catholic army, but basically is. They're trying to get them to obey the Pope's decrees, and they're refusing. And so they write the Magdeburg Confession of 1550 as a response to this to say, here is why we are not going to just let them come in and do whatever they want. Here's why we're going to defend ourselves. And um, so the siege begins in 1550 is when it was written. It lasts about a year. At the end of that year, 4,000 of the emperor's men are dead and 468 Magdeburgers. So the Magdeburgers actually win this battle. They survive the siege and um, they get to stay as a Lutheran city. Uh, it's a very brief overview, but that's essentially uh, what happened. So, um, they said there's four levels of injustice, and that's what you have on the back of your sheet there. Now, I'll, I'll read you parts of this to help explain it. Um, level one's kind of fun. The not excessively atrocious governor. <laughs> that basically, I'll, I'll tell you what they mean by that. Uh, first, then, as all men do... So especially magistrates by their natural weakness have their own vices and sins by which either knowingly or wantonly they sometimes do injustice, injuries, not excessively atrocious, but reme remediable. Um, in other words, you don't have a perfect ruler ever. And you've got to put up with a lot, right? You're going to have sins and weaknesses, and you just got to put up with that. That is not a reason to, uh, to resist just because they are they're flawed human beings. So that's, that's the first one. You notice there's nothing below that. The perfect ruler. <laughs> like they, don't, they, don't have a, they don't have a line for that. It doesn't exist. So this means you don't resist at all. You just, whatever happens, happens, and you just got to put up with it. Yeah, that can include some, some bad laws or whatever, as long as, as you'll see as these go, it's nothing wicked um, or tyrannical. You, you just put up with it. Level two, the law is tyrants. The second level is that of atrocious and notorious injuries, as when a leader from a state or Caesar from an individual leader wishes by unjust violence, contrary to his oath and the laws, it's a very important line, to take away life or spouse or children or privilege and sovereignty acquired by inheritance or law. In such a case, since we will say that no one is compelled by the command of God to submit to the usurpation of his own rights, so neither will we say that anyone is terrified by the command of God himself also bears the office of a magistrate, that he should not use the authority of a magistrate in making the necessary defense. But we will hope that in this circumstance, Christian magistrates are prepared to suffer even injuries of this sort and to leave vengeance to God when the injury affects individual men or a few men, and when the injury is able to be tolerated without sin. 
this is fascinating to me. Level two is, even if they're taking life, children, and wife from certain people, that you should still suffer under that as far as you're able to. Now, notice they're very careful. They'll say, you are not compelled by God. You don't have to do this, but we think this is best to still suffer under this. Like I said, what they're willing to put up with is a lot because they're afraid of chaos or afraid of anarchy. Uh, And so they're willing to put up with a lot. So level two is they've done some really wicked, atrocious things. But even the Christian magistrate, who's a lesser magistrate below that ruler, if they can let it be and not resist, then that's a, they think that's a better option. Which I think is hard for us, because we hear that and we're like, what? <laughs> Wife and kids, that's it. Let's go. Like that's, I think that's uh, our, our American response to that. We're kind of like, that's, that's insane. Why would you do it? But they're saying, no. If it's, if it's limited in its scope, it's not a lot of people they're doing this to, it's a few, then, then you need to hold off resisting. That's, um, that's, that's, I think that's hard for us to wrap our heads around. Um, I think it has to do with, um, if, if it's limited in its scope, then they're concerned that resisting will create much worse problems than what you're currently living under. It would create a level of chaos and more death and more bloodshed that may not be worth it at that point. So the resistance for them is actually fighting. For us, it could be voting the person out, right? Yeah, we'll talk about that in a second. Yeah, our resistance can look a lot different because we, we have the power to vote, right? Um, third, degree of injury to a magistrate, and this is the one, the coercive tyrant, uh, in which an inferior magistrate is so forced to certain sin that he is not able to suffer it without sin if defense is omitted. For the sake of which he himself bears the sword, as when Pharaoh orders the midwives to kill the male children of the Hebrews, or if he were to order Moses to aid in the persecution of the Israelites. But here there's a need for accurate and true judgments, lest in beating back injury, other higher laws be violated, which would make the repelling of injury itself unjust too, and incite muttering, um, complaints against those who resisted. And these last two kinds of magistrates who are the authors of such injuries properly become and are called tyrants. So, um, they say, look, if, especially if the lesser magistrates being forced to carry out sins against the people, then they should resist. Um, but resistance doesn't necessarily always mean fighting. Resistance could just be, you just say, no, I'm not going to do this and suffer the consequences. Um, but it's where you refuse to go along with whatever... And again, they're specifically writing this to lesser magistrates, not just to any citizen, but to those who have power below the, the, head, the head ruler, those below them, how they should be viewing this. Until you get to level four, then everyone's brought in. Level four is the persecutor of God. The fourth and highest level of injury by superiors is more than tyrannical. It's when tyrants begin to be so mad, they persecute with guile and arms, not so much the just persons of inferior magistrates and their subjects as the right itself, especially the right of anyone of highest and most necessary rank. And they persecute God, the author of rights in persons, not by any sudden and momentary fury, but with a deliberate and persistent attempt to destroy good works for all posterity. If anyone advances in madness this way, even the highest monarch who does so unwittingly, he is not merely a bear wolf, 
to which Luther compares a tyrant in his disputation, but is the very devil himself. And in that case, everyone can and should resist, essentially. So notice, they don't even say everyone should resist until you get, so they see them as basically the devil himself ruling over them, attacking the church, attacking God's people. Um, they put up with a lot until they get to that point. Um, and so it was asked, what about for us today? Well, as it was noted, we can vote out wicked rulers. Like we actually have quite a bit of power that like the Magdeburgers couldn't probably even imagine like how much power you have to vote people out of office or vote other people into office. But um, I, I do, one of the reasons I like to use them as an example, one, they were Lutheran who thought through all of these different things, but two, they were willing to suffer a lot to keep the peace. Like they, they weren't willing just to like overthrow or, or do something unless it was so wicked and so bad that they felt like they, they must do it. Um, and so, and the first three levels, as I said, are, are the lesser magistrates stepping in and, and doing it. So when not taking to the fourth one where they basically say, look, the magistrates and the people need to step up and, and resist this kind of, this kind of thing. Um, and then, of course, the question becomes, as it was asked, you know, resisting with, with fighting them. And that could be, um, that could be the case, or there'd be other ways of resisting too. It doesn't have to be. Uh, it doesn't have to end in any kind of bloodshed. There can be other resistance too, uh, especially for God's people. All right, we have a few minutes left. Nope, we're out of time. <laughs> any final questions? Yes. We had a government that was telling us that we could not worship during COVID. The resistance would be more of a civil disobedience and, and just do it and pay the consequences. Is that right? I think that's where that would fall. You you do it and you you um. And you, you're, I mean, a lot of that you see a lot, a lot in the New Testament. Um, you told us not to do this anymore, but we're going to do it. Instead, don't preach the name of Jesus, we're going to preach the name of Jesus. And if you have to punish us, punish us, but we're still going to do it. Right? Um, so, yeah. Um, again, these don't cover everything, but at least they can help us begin to think through these really messy things like war and resistance um, and government tyranny. Let us pray. Oh, Lord God and Father, we thank you for the wisdom of your words. How it can help us to wrestle through these issues? Help us to have wisdom and to think clearly about these things and um, help us to always come to you in prayer and to wisely consider all, all things, whether it be war or resistance or whatever it may be, and trusting you and your wisdom to guide us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.